On the show today, Rich and I talk about the coaching carousel spinning in college football, the return of cassette tapes, and why you should make the Sazerac cocktail this holiday season. I'm your host, Brad Jackson, and you're listening to the December 6th, 2021 edition of Coffee and Koshan. So, Rich, it is that time of year where coaches get hired and fired in college football and the carousel is spinning and it is spinning oh so fast, my friend. We have seen so many big name programs change coaches over the last week. Um, If you think about if you think about just two, um, if you look at Oklahoma, uh, whose coach Lincoln Riley left to go to USC and you look at Notre Dame, um, whose coach left to go to LSU, um, Brian Kelly was the winningest coach in Notre Dame history and opted to leave South Bend to go down to LSU. And when Lincoln Riley left Oklahoma to go to USC, that was a move that had not been made at Oklahoma since the 1940s. Previous to that, if you left Oklahoma, you either left because you got fired, because you retired, or because you died. So (laughs) Lincoln (laughs) Riley deciding to pick up and leave Norman for Los Angeles to USC is a monumental move. A lot of people have said that he was wary of OU and Texas's uh, impending move here to the SEC. Brian Kelly, on the other hand, was like, hey, man, I want to go compete in the SEC. I, 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 want, I don't want to be hogtied anymore um, by Notre Dame being an independent, by not getting a championship game, all those sort of things. And, and frankly, Notre Dame is a very uh, uh, difficult school to get into. Um, it is an academically rigorous institution. Um, and no offense to people at LSU, but let's just say that academic rigors at LSU for football players are not what they may be in South Bend. So uh, he will get a chance to get a sort of, I think, broader base of talent at LSU that, than he had at Notre Dame. But I, I'm just amazed. And, and that's not even, I mean, that's not all the changes that we had. Most recently, it was announced that Mario Cristobal is leaving Oregon for Miami, which is going to be another big move. Um, and then uh, OU is looking at replacing... Um, uh, is, is looking at replacing Lincoln Riley with Brent Venables, who is the defensive coordinator at Clemson. He used to be the defensive coordinator at OU for a very long time. Um, Notre Dame hired their defensive coordinator to uh, replace Brian Kelly, which a lot of people are saying is a great move. I know nothing about him, um, but a lot of people who are, are smarter at this than I am say that was a very good move on their part. But um, when you look at these changes Rich, what's the first thing that springs to mind for you? The absolutely giant record-setting contract, purportedly. The details haven't fully been released yet, but Riley is supposedly getting around $110 million overall to go to USC. And initially there were some rumors that they were buying his houses in Oklahoma so that he wouldn't have to do that. And then they were also buying him a house in uh, in California so he wouldn't have to worry with that. One rumor that has not been shot down yet is that he gets 
as much use of the private jet as he wants for yeah, he and I his family. Yeah, I saw that. I couldn't believe that. I mean, good Lord. <laughs> First of all, I mean, it's not uncommon for big universities, um, wealthy universities, to have private jets. That's not an uncommon thing. However, to woo a coach by saying, hey, man, we're going to give you a G5. Here are the keys. Have fun. Like, that's that's a new step. Like, I have not heard of schools doing that before. It has gotten insanely competitive to get these good coaches and contracts that 10 years ago would have been huge are now peanuts. And so these schools and the foundations they have to help uh, defray the cost of bringing on these coaches, they're they're throwing major bucks at these people. And to a point you made when we were discussing this earlier, you know, before some of these details had come out, why would Riley go to California and be a, a a small fish in a big pond when he was basically king of Oklahoma. But then you see those numbers and it's like, oh, this this makes a little more sense now. What's interesting, though, I mean, and let's talk about that, because if you think about it, Lincoln Riley was literally one of the richest men in Oklahoma. All right. Like he was the highest paid state official of anybody, which is not uncommon for football, football coaches in, in, in uh, particularly in southern states. But he was literally one of the richest men in Oklahoma. He had money to burn. OK, like, and your money goes a long way in a state like Oklahoma. When you take that money, even though he's getting paid a truckload of it, OK, to go to USC, the, undeniably, that is a lot of money. But it doesn't go as far in California. Okay, and frankly, Los Angeles society doesn't give, you know, two whatevers about Lincoln Riley. Um, They're just not going to care. He's going to be just another, you know, mid-level celebrity struggling to get his kids into good private school in Los Angeles. Um, Whereas in Oklahoma, I doubt that man ever got a parking ticket because they're like, oh, coach. Oh, no big deal. No, you park wherever you want. You want to park in the grass. You just go for it, coach. I mean, like, you know, he was king of the castle in Norman. Um, That's not the case in Los Angeles. I think that's going to be a bit of a wake up call for him. Um, Let's talk about Brian Kelly, though. This is something interesting. So I mentioned um, Texas and Oklahoma are going to go to the SEC. The SEC is expanding. It's going to be it already is the premier football conference, but it will be even more so the premier football conference. Bringing in a talent like Brian Kelly is a huge get for LSU. And there was a lot of talk, actually, that Lincoln Riley was going to be their big fish because their AD had promised they were going to get a big fish for this hire after they got rid of Coach O. And uh, the rumor mill was that it was going to be Lincoln Riley. And Lincoln Riley denied that he was going to LSU just a few hours before he (laughs) announced he was going to USC. Um, But now that it is... Brian Kelly, what's the, uh, I mean, you're in, you're in SEC country. What's, what's the reaction been there? It's uh, been, I haven't heard a ton of, about it, but I think it's mostly positive and not necessarily because coach Ogeron has kind of fallen a little bit from his on field heights from when they won the ch- national championship just a couple of years ago. But as his off field scandals have become 
too much to bear. And so they bring in Kelly, who, as you mentioned, is somewhat hampered by what he can offer recruits at Notre Dame, not only is it the, the academic side, but he can't offer them the same sort of luxury perks that he'll be able to offer at LSU. And so I, I think a, another interesting thing to me about Kelly is that he's leaving before their bowl game. It's not like Notre Dame is right. having a bad season. Like he's he's just gone. And and with Riley uh, hinting, we see this a lot these days with coaches, oh, Coach so-and-so is going to go here. Coach so-and-so is going to go here. And then at the last minute, they go somewhere else after denying that they're leaving at all. And it's this whole bargaining game. But I, I think it could be a very interesting thing to see Kelly go to LSU because he probably is a little bit more disciplined just from his experience at Notre Dame. And he'll be able to spread his wings a little bit, but it, probably not to the, the extent that Coach O, who is a fun media personality, but – I understood why they uh, decided it was time to figure out a, an amicable way to part ways with him. Now, I, I mean, personally, I loved watching Coach O do interviews. I could only understand about every fifth word, but the man loved what he did. He loved that school. He loved that state, and that was evident in every uh, guttural word that came out <laughs> came out of him. He sounded like an alligator talking and that was awesome for LSU. That was that was just perfect form for LSU. I think it will be interesting though, Rich, to see the sort of culture clash. Brian Kelly's a man from the Northeast. I believe he's from Massachusetts and he spent most of the last 20 years in the Midwest. Now he's going down to the Bayou, which is its own world. And don't get me wrong, New Orleans is one of my favorite places on the face of the earth. But that whole little area down there is its is its own world. It, it, there are different rules. There are different customs down there. Now, it was funny. I saw a clip of him giving a speech to students at a basketball game right after he was announced as coach, and he tried to sort of roll a little bit of a southern accent <laughs> into what he was saying, and it didn't come out well. Twitter bashed him for it, um, but... I don't know. How do you think he can adjust to the SEC? I honestly think he is on par with the coaching in the SEC on day one. I, I mean, he's he's uh, he's an incredible coach, and I don't think that's going to be an issue for him. But it is going to be a culturally different place for him to work. Very much so. And he's going to have to adjust his approach to recruiting yes. as part of that. So he's going to have to probably learn to be a, a little less uh, buttoned down and, you know, I can't, I'm not going to attempt the French phrase, but, you know, let the good times roll, as they say in a, in New Orleans and in Louisiana. He's going to have to get on board with that, but he's also going to have to really get into the competitive nature, the cutthroat nature of the SEC, where you can have a fair amount of performance, but if it's not the right level of performance that key donors and other people are after, you will get fired with the quickness. This well, is well, I mean, a place- I mean, let's look at Coach O. The man won a national championship just a few years ago. I mean, he was the toast of the sport. Everybody was like, "He is the second coming. Like, he's amazing. Look what he did. Like that team he had was almost in, almost entirely made up of future NFL players and." Uh, they were unbelievable, and they rolled from from beginning to end that season. They were incredible, and just a few years later, whoop, out the door. 
Yeah, and he was such a fantastic story because he, he didn't have the the same pedigree that you would expect. He kind of came out of nowhere and just turned into this powerhouse. And now, uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll see him doing commentary on ESPN in a year or two, or maybe he'll end up uh, he'll do what some coaches do and go try to redeem himself at a smaller school. But uh, they they definitely dropped him like a hot potato. Well, I think it's going to be interesting. I, I also think this move, um, which just happened uh, recently, of uh, Cristobal to Miami is going to be uh, cool to see because Miami is one of those teams that I, and USC to, to some degree as well, I think the sport is better when those teams are better because it's not just a you know Southeast U.S. sport. And there's nothing wrong with the SEC. There's nothing wrong with, with those those teams doing well, but when it's a sport where each coast is also involved, then I, I think it's better for the sport as a whole because it doesn't get sort of pigeonholed as this, uh, you know, Southern sport. It's, it's, it's a broader sport. And I think uh, with Riley at USC, he's going to dominate the PAC 12 on day one. And there's no question about that. He has rated OU's recruiting class and some of the players on their current roster to go to USC with him. And I would be surprised if uh, Cristobal didn't do the same thing, take some of Oregon's best players and bring them down to uh, Miami to help them out down there. Um, I just think it's going to be interesting to see in, I don't know, maybe two or three years' time when those programs are back up and running with those guys and they've had time to, you know, sort of uh, fill the vacancies and stuff. Um, this going to be really interesting to watch. It's going to be extremely interesting, and it it really, it, to your point, it it brings a national level back to the sport where it's not just a regional thing. It's it's something that the whole nation can get into those rivalries, and it's it's just more fun to see good games. Uh, and so it's it's an interesting time with all of these coaches on this carousel. And speaking of things spinning. There has been an interesting development in the world of culture to just change gears here, and that is that cassette tapes have been making a comeback, most notably with Adele releasing 30 in addition to vinyl and CD and digital. She also released it on cassette. And so this is a a thing that's happening, which you and I grew up with cassettes, and it's kind of hard to believe. Yeah, okay, this is, and I, I like what you did that I see with things spinning. Um, this is this was hard for me to believe. So you and I grew up in the era where you had a cassette, and, and the benefit of a cassette was not that it gave you great audio clarity like a, a vinyl record does, okay? What the benefit of the cassette was is that it was mobile. So you could take it in your Walkman, on a jog, or in the car, um, you know, when I was a kid and, and we'd take long car trips, uh, you'd always have like those books on tape, you know, and like you'd read along and, you know, like R2-D2 would beep when you were supposed to turn the page sort of thing. And and that was all on a cassette tape. And and it was great because it was portable. But cassettes, the thing about cassettes that kind of sucked is that like, you know, they, they tended to to crack or or the tape would break or it would get stuck in your player and then you're taking it out and like all the tape would string out and I mean like it it wasn't a it, it wasn't a great medium for listening to music but it's what you had because it was mobile and it was easy the thing like the thing that was uh, fun about it is that you could stay up 
you know, over a weekend and you could like uh, find the songs you wanted to listen to on the radio and you could tape them on a, to a, a tape and then you could make a mixtape for your girlfriend or your friends or whatever or for a car trip or whatever. Um, now you can just do that by selecting songs and adding them to a playlist. <laughs> uh, it's a much easier thing. But I'm surprised here, Rich, that that nostalgia has reached back and saved the cassette. Um, I understand saving vinyl. There's some there's some audio quality things you get from vinyl. There's there's the whole process of listening to it from beginning to end. I have a decent vinyl collection myself, but I, I'm surprised cassettes are being saved. Are you? I am very surprised. And one angle that I didn't think about, and when I was researching this, uh, an angle that kept popping up is during the pandemic, live music came to a halt. And particularly when you're talking small bands, not Adele's, not people like that, although there have been other releases besides hers. It was a cost-effective way for them to try to recover some lost income from not being able to perform because you can make a tape and sell it much easier than you can do uh, even burning CDs at this point. And then also you can still get pretty cheap boom boxes or things like that. You cannot buy quality cassette decks really anymore. I think there are two on the market and for the, the hardcore nostalgia, but it, that was an angle that I hadn't thought of because like you, I'm thinking about, well, it was cool. I have lots of memories of cassettes. I have lots of memories of my favorite cassette, just self-destructing yeah. or things like that. So I just, and as a kid, you don't want to replace this stuff at any point in your life. But as a kid, you know, this was however many yards you had mowed or however many weeks of allowance or whatever that you'd saved up to buy this thing that just said, you know what, I'm not going to work anymore. Yeah, it is interesting because they're they're not durable. They don't give you a great audio quality, but they seem to be coming back. I, I guess it's that, you know, everything that is old is new again at some point or another. Um but I'm amazed by this. Rich, I, I'm not an Adele listener. I couldn't ad- identify an Adele song for you if I had a gun in my head. Um, but it seems like there are enough people who listen to Adele who have gone crazy about this cassette she released for her latest uh, album. And I, I explain that to me because I just don't get that. I I think it just has to be the most hardcore of fans who are like, I am going to get this in every format available because I love Adele that much. I honestly, I don't think I've heard any of the songs off the, off the new album. I have heard some Adele songs. There's one or two I could recognize, but here's a super interesting thing and why I think it's a nostalgia collector thing, particularly or a per, a collector thing, particularly for Adele, is if you go to her website, the CD is $12. The cassette is $16. So people <laughs> are paying more for a cassette oh than a CD. And when you discuss the audio problems with cassettes, it's I'm not going to get into all of it, but 
when you talk CDs, the frequency range that they offer goes down, uh, you know, 40 decibels below the lowest bass noise available, and it goes up above the range of human hearing on the high end. And even though we're not talking about sounds we hear, you want that captured in an audio recording so that every every frequency is able to make it through and cassettes really clip those off, which is why they have an inferior sound. But, you know, to, to each his own, I am not going to be rushing out and buying new cassettes. I do have a cassette player somewhere for things I have left over from college that, you know, friends made mixtapes or things like that, that are only available on these old cassettes I have that, may still work but like i said i don't even know where my my little jam box is at this point if you'd like to advertise on future episodes of coffee and koshan please contact us at coffee and koshan at gmail.com briefly mentioned um, Louisiana earlier when we were talking about LSU. Uh, they make a drink that sort of started down there and, and really has a big following down there. Um, that is one of my personal favorites. Um, and uh, it's one that uh, uh, I used to drink in DC with our uh, mutual friend, Ben Dominich when, when uh, I was still living up there uh, and that's the Sazerac. And uh, this is a drink that has a rich history that is uh, interesting because everybody makes it just a little bit differently, um, but it is one that just, it packs a wallop, but it also it just, it's, it's flavor jumping out of a glass. So when we discussed the old fashioned, we were talking about your basics and how you can, you need to master the basics so that you can then experiment. And the Sazerac in a way is just a, and I don't want to say improved upon because the old fashioned is perfect as it is, but it's a different iteration of an old fashioned. So with the Sazerac, you take a teaspoon of sugar or a sugar cube. And then the way I make it is with Peychaud's bitters. And that is a, a bitters that were created in New Orleans. So New Orleans cocktail. Some people will add the Angostura bitters to it. Uh, but this is the thing about cocktails. You want to do it your way. But so you take the sugar, the bitters, you muddle those up and you put your uh, two ounces of rye whiskey. Although initially it was made with brandy, but then it, as it became Americanized, they started making it with rye or bourbon. And you stir that all up until the sugar's nice and dissolved, and then you take that and strain it into, and you want to have ice in there to cool it down, and then you take your drink and strain it into a different old-fashioned glass, old highball glass that you have chilled, and then you drink it without ice because it's it's been made perfect in the preparation, and you don't want any more dilution to your drink. And okay, so the, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you there because I want you to talk about that for a minute because I think that is a key, key portion of this drink. We mentioned when we were talking about 
um, bourbons uh, earlier, a few shows back, that, uh, you know, you can drink them with a splash of water, you can drink them on ice, you can drink them just straight up, um, however you want to do it. But when you make a Sazerac, it's important to, to do all your mixing over here, but then serve it in a different glass. And also not forget the key step that makes it a Sazerac that I just skipped and take your cold glass and put some absinthe in it. And then the way I did it was just swirl it around, make sure get a nice coat and then dump the absinthe out and then add the mix. But the reason for that is uh, to, to turn this into a brief physics lecture. The there is no such thing as cold. There is only an absence of heat. And so this is why ice cream churns work. You take the warmth that's inside of your cream and your your sugar and eggs and whatnot. And then as you crank it, that heat wants to go to where there is no heat and it goes to melt the ice. And so then your ice cream gets cold, it loses its heat. And so that's why you don't want to take your Sazerac and put it into a warm glass because you're taking a cold liquid and if you put it in a cold glass, it's not going to want to compete. The glass isn't going to want to leach the coolness out of your drink. And to your point, to your actual question, the Sazerac has a little bit more. It has twice as much sugar as an old-fashioned, so it's already nice and sweet, perfectly drinkable. The absinthe and the bitters add a, a lovely herbaceous flavor to it all that really gives it the Sazerac, makes it a Sazerac. So you don't want to mess with it after that. Whereas sometimes if you're sipping on a bourbon or something, it's okay if it gets a little more diluted as you sip. But with this, it would just... It, it would taste like the end of a drink if you let it get too watery while you're drinking it. Okay, let's talk about that key ingredient there, and you mentioned it, absinthe. Um, we are, we are, it's a holiday time. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I have been uh, ordering Christmas presents. I had like 5,000 of them show up at my door earlier today. I had to hide them from the kids. Um, when uh, you make this, it includes absinthe. Absinthe is a drink that has let's say a checkered past, um, but it, it's it's one of my favorites, and there are a lot of ways to drink absinthe. You can drink it as part of a mixed drink like this, uh, where you wash the glass with it, um, or you can have it uh, just on, on ice uh, and with with some water, and you can talk about that in a minute, but it's one of those drinks that, that I, I think is just really good, but a lot of people just don't know about it. No. And what they do know is untrue. For a long time, the green fairy, as it's sometimes called, was considered to be a hallucinogen that could cause all of these various problems that other alcohols don't. And that ended up being a myth. The wormwood, which is what gives uh, absinthe its flavor, it, it was thought to have these psychoactive properties. And there was a famous case in like 1902 in Switzerland, I believe, where this farmer drank two glasses of absinthe and then murdered his family and was found passed out on top of one of them. But it really just turned out that he was a horrific drunk who had drank <laughs> co copious amounts of other things and then had the two glasses of absinthe after he had drunk all these other things. So 
most of the the negative qualities are the same negative qualities that you would get with drinking copious amounts of any alcohol. And with absinthe, it's a super strong drink. It normally clocks in at 55 to 60 percent alcohol in the bottle, whereas, you know, a bourbon or a vodka or gin or whatever is going to, you know, be more 40, 45 percent. So when you start talking 60 percent, you know, that's stout. Which is yeah. Yes. Which is why the preparations for absinthe can get more involved because it's not something that's necessarily pleasant to just drink straight out of the bottle. Whereas, you know, you could you could get your whiskey and just add a couple of drops of water and be good. So the the traditional way to, to drink absinthe is there's a special slotted spoon and some of the bottles you buy will come with that. And uh, you put a sugar cube, you pour pour your your shot of absinthe into a glass, you place the slotted spoon on top with a sugar cube, and then you slowly add ice water, cold. You don't want the ice, you just want it to be cold, and let that water drip over the sugar cube and down into the glass and slowly dilute it to the level that you would like, which is also fun because some of the particles in uh, absinthe they come loose, they break free from the mixture when you add water. And so it creates this effect called the louche. And I've just, I butcher French pronunciations, which have come up several times today, but this louche gives it a a cloudy, uh, almost milky appearance, whereas it starts as a clear to green liquor when you first pour it. So it's a fun thing to do. It adds that, level of ceremony that makes making good cocktails or pouring a good drink fun. It's not just taking it and pouring it in a shot glass. You're you're preparing it. It's just like being in the kitchen and making a nice meal when you make a nice cocktail and then get to drink it. There's the reward of going through the process to get to where you want and then enjoying the reward. But also absinthe, you and I like it, but you say a lot of people don't. And this is why it's a fun one for this time of year. Absolutely. Because we're all looking for gifts to give people. Like you mentioned, we've all got our boxes showing up. And for people who have a well-stocked bar, sometimes they forget these odd things that you wouldn't necessarily drink on a monthly basis or, uh, you know, even every couple of months. But you want to have it for that moment when it's time to make a Sazerac or something. So this is something to consider for the the people in your life who like to make cocktails. Maybe instead of trying to track down that, you know, hard to find bottle of wine or, or bourbon or whatever, you can just go to the liquor store and for reasonable prices, find a variety of absinthe that you could give to someone. Well, and they are they're fun to drink. You mentioned that the way you uh, do it with the the dripping water and the the slotted spoon. If you do it in a uh, French bar or, or or bistro or something like that, and they present it like that, it's it's a showstopper. Like everybody around you is like, "Whoa, what do you, what do you, what do you got there? What's what's going on? What what, what is that?" Um, and you you become <laughs> you become a show as as that water drips in through the spoon and and it turns it from green to white and uh, it's just a cool show it's it's and and it's a really interesting drink if you like that flavor profile um, it's a lot of fun and it's it's something you can mix in drinks or or uh, rinse glasses for for a lot of different cocktails um, is is there another one rich that that comes to mind another absinthe minded cocktail. 
There is. So Ernest Hemingway, who, uh, in addition to being a fantastic author, was also famous for his prodigious ability to drink, created a cocktail for a celebrity cocktail book, and uh, I forget what year, but he called it Death in the Afternoon, which was <laughs> somewhat of a, a playful name, but accurate. So to make a death in the afternoon, you pour a jigger of absinthe into a champagne flute, and then you slowly add ice-cold champagne until it reaches that proper uh, level of cloudiness because it will react the same way to the champagne as it does to the ice water, so it develops that the louche, the cloudy effect. But Hemingway took it a step further. So he did not just provide instructions for how to make a death in the afternoon when he offered his concoction. He specifically said, drink three to five of these slowly. (laughs) (laughs) And then destroy your afternoon. (laughs) Yes, because, again, we're talking an alcohol that's like 60%. It's like, you know, 120 proof. So you throw a shot of that in with champagne, which is less, uh, isn't as strong, but it's still alcohol. And... I have had a death in the afternoon. It's a very enjoyable thing. I have never attempted the recommended amount of death in the afternoons because really one is good. And and your afternoon is going to be over if you drink it in the afternoon after just one. I cannot imagine what what your day would like be like it's really probably the death of the day it's it's would be called for me it would be the bedtime if i were to drink three to five of these however slowly i chose to drink them yeah it's like drink this leads to nap (laughs) wow yeah well uh so there you go if you are looking for a gift for friends or family members who have well-stocked bars take rich's advice Grab them some absinthe. It's it, it, the first of all when they open it under the tree, it'll be great because you can tell this whole story, or preferably you can have them listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, on uh, Spotify. You can find it on our website, coffeeandcoshawn.com. Rich, thanks so much. Appreciate it. See you next week. See you next week, Brad. <laughs>